1: You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to David Broder, the historian and author of Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. We'll discuss the rise of Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney, why her premiership has confounded so many, and the legacy of fascism in Italian politics.
0: David Broder, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. To start, I'm going to ask you quite, quite a broad question, but I will start big. So what is the history of Giorgia Maloney's Fratelli d'Italia? I wonder if you could trace its evolution within Italian politics.
2: In a way, Fratelli d'Italia is quite a new party. It was founded in 2012. For its first few years, it had very poor electoral results. In the general election before last, it only got 4%. And so its rise can seem like a kind of sudden breakthrough. This far-right party that got more than 25% of the vote in last September's general election. But its history goes back very far, and that is why the title of my book is Mussolini's Grandchildren. This is a party which has origins dating right back to the end of World War II. Of course, the flame in its logo is that of the Movimento Sociale Italiano, the party that was set up in 1946 by defeated leaders of Benito Mussolini's regime who wanted to keep fascism going as the saying had it, to be fascists in a democracy. This is a party that throughout the post-war decades, when it was called the MSI, was always more or less excluded from being in national government. I very much had the sense of a kind of a marginalized party, one that was excluded, felt silenced. Milani would often say that it was a criminalized political movement. Of course, part of the reason it was criminalized was because of its criminality is linked with far-right terrorist groups and, of course, the violence of 1970s Italy. She entered politics in a rather different period the kind of early 1990s, when she was a teenager, when she got involved in the MSI. Over the 90s and 2000s, you know, that was a party renamed itself National Alliance that became part of Berlusconi's coalition governments, of course. And so I think we can say that Fratelli d'Italia is a party of this new period in Italian politics. So after the end of the Cold War, with Italy in the EU, with less social violence than in the past, less big class conflicts and so on. But it's still a party that maintains this link to the sort of neo-fascist past. In fact, in the late 2000s, the old party had merged with Berlusconi's own party. And Fratelli d'Italia is actually a split from that. It was created in 2012. It reasserted the old name The old flame in its logo said that the previous reformist leader, Gianfranco Fini, had, in Giorgio Meloni's words, been a plaything of high finance, the powers behind the scenes, international Freemasonry. So the party actually began in 2012 as a kind of reassertion of this historic kind of uh, identity, the historic record of the MSI. But then it's also a party that that has been part of a sort of broad right-wing coalition, with Berlusconi, of course, with the Lega as well, on and off for the last three decades.
0: You mentioned Maloney entering politics as a teenager in the early 90s. How has she evolved herself as a politician? And from what we know about her political beliefs, how have they evolved since then as well?
2: One of the things we know, of course, is the famous clip many of your readers and listeners would have seen of Georgia Maloney in 1996, telling French TV that Mussolini was a great leader, better than all the other politicians for the last 50 years, and that he did what he did for Italy. Giorgia Milani no longer says things like this. Whether she, normally, she no longer says things like this, lots of members of her party certainly still do. And even in her own language, there's certainly an, an indulgent vision of the fascist past, talking about it in kind of relative terms, playing up. Criminality of its opponents, particularly like communist partisans and so on. But really, I think she's not particularly obsessed with the regime period. In fact, I think that for her entering politics in the early 1990s, the kind of memory, the kind of identity that she has is actually much more focused on post war neo fascism. She calls it the democratic right. Really, she means the MSI, the neo fascist tradition. The idea that they were victimized, that Anti-fascism was a kind of byword for just open season for members of other parties to be able to demonize and even kill members of the MSI. Notably in her, when she saw the confidence of the lower house of parliament in October, in her speech, she mentioned this case of Sergio Ramelli, who was like an 18 year old boy who was killed by far left activists in 1975, a member of the MSI. He was So the idea is we were silenced, we were murdered just because of our ideas, and that's what anti-fascism means. He often says, let's end all this talk of fascism and anti-fascism, and let's concentrate on the real issues. However, in reality, a certain way of talking about anti-fascism and fascism is constantly brought up by her, but it's designed to make anti-fascism seem illegitimate, to be something that's outlasted its historic necessity. And that she's trying to replace that with a sort of a generic Italian patriotism, which no longer has the sort of post-war, what's called the anti-fascist bias of Italian democracy. At the same time, I think we can see other kind of evolutions in her thinking, or at least her way of talking. For example, in the late 2010s, just in the period where her party was in opposition, as I extensively document in the book, she very often took up the language of The Great Replacement Theory, books like Camp of the Saints, which have the same basic idea of a conspiracy among financial elites, usurers, and speculators, as well as the radical left, Marxists, cultural Marxist NGOs, and so on, that those are all planning the ethnic substitution basically of Europeans, basically white Italians, with immigrants. She has somewhat changed that rhetoric, but some of the basic elements remain in particular the idea that if Italians don't boost their birth rates, then that will mean the extinction of the Italian people. So I think while she's moved on from actually praising historical fascism, the fixation on an ethnic conception of politics and nationhoods.
0: I'm going to come back to that, but first I want to talk about kind of perceptions of her as prime minister. I know when she first won There was a lot of quite wild speculation, especially in the international press, that she was the hardest right, ushering the hardest right government in Italian politics. And then there was the counter that would say, oh no, this is different. This is post-fascism. It's no different than traditional conservatism. It's far different. So I just wondered these first few months that she's been now prime minister, in what ways has she confounded expectations?
2: I I think it's certainly true that the a lot of the speculation about what she could do was a little, what could be termed alarmist, was based on a misconception of what she was ever likely to do. After all, this is a party that has been in government before. In the Berlusconi governments, of course, the relative weight of the three parties is different. We've seen this party before. We know what it is. It was never likely to seek any kind of conflict with it was never likely to change into Italy's international position in terms of leaving the EU or even things like questioning Italy's place in the euro or even its debt obliga- obligations. It was never likely to turn away from Italy's stance towards NATO and support for Ukraine. In fact, I think those things are not just tactical, tactically necessary, which they are, but they're actually very well rooted in the party's I think it nonetheless is the hardest right government in post-war Italian history. But in all, lots of ways, it's a kind of continuation of the things we saw in the Berlusconi era. So obsessive identity politics and culture war. But at the same time, those kind of, as I say, more fundamental issues of Italy's place in international institutions, the kind of things that would interest international press more aren't really going to change. I think there's a certain indulgent attitude which says she's not really turned out so bad that makes sense if you think she was going to shake Italy's place in Europe and so on but I think it it also entails a certain blindness to some of the things the government actually has already done one one particular form that takes of is of course is the demonization of migrants blaming migrants for their own deaths and shipwrecks and so on which in a way is not entirely new or specific to this government but is, of course, accelerating a trend we've seen over recent decades, this totally repressive attitude towards migration, demonization of migrants, and so on. Then there are things like, for example, only a couple of weeks ago, when there was a European Court of Human Rights report on the violent violence in Italian prisons, the use of torture by policemen and prison guards, the Italian government reacted by saying that it was going to get rid of the specific crime of torture which it says is is used to stop police doing their jobs. So with that kind of thing, or for instance, of course, one of the important moves of the government is this plan to enforce the use of Italian only in public settings so that even private meetings, even like university seminars and so on, couldn't take place in English without simultaneous translation. So a lot of this kind of thing might, might sound like kind of very silly and over the top, this kind of instruction to people to only speak Italian. But I think at the same time that it's part of a sort of harshening of nationalist identity politics, which does actually have real consequences also for linguistic minorities, for example, Slovenes, never mind immigrants. So I think, of course, they're not going to be, I think we're not going to see a drastic coming to power of fascism. But I think what we could see are things a bit more like the kind of gradual process that we see in, say, Orbán's, or Viktor Orbán's Hungary, where there's a kind of gradual frittering away of existing civil rights? For example, we also take the case of the, the the instruction to local councils not to register same-sex parents a couple of weeks ago, but also things like whichever more specific kind of authoritarian aim, firstly s- signalling to police that they can treat sub treat suspects with harsher way, getting rid of the anti-torture law and so on. But also there's been proposals for things like, for example, a criminalization of apologism for Islamism or for communist totalitarianism. So it's not hard to see how that kind of law could be used to squash actually quite a wide array of critics. So yeah, I think basically we're not seeing a drastic slide into fascism, but lots of the specific things they've done are actually quite bad.
1: Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash
0: podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host The New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host
0: I'm glad you mentioned Orban there because I wanted to ask how Maloney and Fatelli today fits within the broader international conservative movement that in your book, as you write, is ever more preoccupied with civilizational decline. Are there any foreign conservative movements like Orbán's or others that, that Maloney is particularly aligned
2: with? Yeah, I mean, I the point I make there about the international conservative movement is that it's not just that Fratelli d'Italia is becoming mainstream because it's moderated its own positions. It's also able to benefit from a certain radicalization of other conservatives. Initially, we often hear it said, how can you say Georgia Meloni is extreme when she's invited to speak at CPAC, the conservative conference in the US, but of course, CPAC also has the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene, QAnon, and and that kind of stuff. So my broad reading of that is that a lot of the barriers that had historically separated sort of Anglo-conservatives from like former collaborationist and fascist parties in Europe have declined a lot. And ideas like great replacement theory, which of course, isn't from a specifically fascist uh, tradition, coined by Renaud Camus in 2010, of course, fits with a lot of fascist themes. These kind of ideas serve as glue between different, different historically different tendencies on the right. Also, of course, I'd say Fratelli d'Italia, it's the historic kind of neo-fascist of like free market capitalism is basically absent from Fratelli d'Italia. It endorses a Reaganite economic principles and openly says so. In terms of Orban and so on, I think that one thing that's interesting is that in 2021, the Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki tried to bring together the two big far-right groups in the European Parliament with the idea of creating a sort of united bloc which would actually be the second biggest force in the EU parliament. So Miloni's group, which also includes the, his own party, Law and Justice in Poland, and very small parties in mainly in Central and Eastern Europe, but then also parties which are in a different group in Europe, such as Le Pen's Rassemblement National, Salvini's Lega, and so on. Even then, they split somewhat over the question of approach, their approach to Russia. The More national and the Lega are both distinctly softer on Putin and have been for several years. And I think actually the war has produced a certain split in that, in, in the sort of European far and hard right, in the sense that Poland and its law and justice government have been somewhat brought in from the cold in the EU, because of course Poland is such a strong supporter of Ukraine and home to so many re- Ukrainian refugees. And that this change in Poland's role has actually helped Milani to give, to find greater credibility for her group in the European Parliament, the ECR, which is now closer to the main Christian democratic bloc, the European People's Party. So I think actually Hungary has been somewhat marginalized by this. Even I think it's quite striking that both when the European Parliament voted very soon before the Italian election to label Hungary as a illiberal autocracy, And also in the recent condemnation of Hungary for its law against gay propaganda in schools, on both occasions, Fratelli d'Italia took sides with Orbán. So there's a lot of this kind of talk like, oh, isn't it so pragmatic and common sense? But actually we do see it taking these strong ideological positions with its longtime ally. So yes, I think what that responds to is a kind of, I think what Fratelli d'Italia has often drawn on is the idea of bringing into Italy some of the same um, ideas and way of framing politics that are typical of ex communist countries? I think we see this, in fact, in the international right. I'm aware my answer to your question is very long. Like, I think I've written a couple of reports for the New Statesman on, on this conference called National Conservatism, uh, which was in Rome in 2020, Brussels last year. It'll be in London this year, and Suela uh, Bravman is speaking, Michael Gove lots of representatives of the uh, Tories. So what we see in this conference is the way in which the kind of language of, say, Orban, who spoke at the Rome Conference in 2020, we fought against the Marxists in 1989, and now we're having to do it all over again. But the Marxists are now talking about LGBT ideology, feminism, identity politics. I think this is very attractive to a, a lot of the international right because they can pick up from you know, basically from Central Eastern European countries this kind of victim narrative of we've been oppressed by communism. And at the same time, it's a way of understanding the threats and the things they don't like in the present. So, immigration, this breakdown of the traditional family, and so on. We see Maloney doing that a lot in Italy, firstly, in fact, with regard to the sort of fascist history. So, this kind of representation of Italy in World War II as a victim of both Nazism and communism, a bit like the way we might more typically speak of countries like, somewhat dubiously, but more typically of the kind of memory culture of Central East European countries, right, caught between the two totalitarians. But then we also see this in the language of fighting contemporary Marxism and so on. So I think the, the historical dimension and the current day identity politics are actually quite closely linked.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you you've pointed out the rhetoric of victimization. And it's just I feel like it's almost a red flag in any conservative argument that as soon as it's kind of framed in that way, and it doesn't matter what they're talking about, whether it's a historical link or current day, you see it a lot in the US and here in the UK when it's discussing trans rights, and it becomes like, oh, what is that going to do for our rights when it's talking about Mm -hmm. women and children? I think that's always such a red flag to me, that framing of victimization that's really it seems like it's become a very common and very powerful strategy among different conservative movements and yeah, and I also really appreciated your point about it's less that fascism in Italy has become m- neutered or less less dangerous, but more that it's not as shocking because a lot of that re- rhetoric is now shared among different conservative movements. And it's really a symbol of how radicalized a lot of conservatives have become in other countries.
2: Yeah, I think one, one, one thing is it's certainly been commented on in Italian press is imagine if Meloni's government had proposed such a measure as deporting failed asylum seekers to Rwanda. I then we'd have very little difficulty saying, like, that that this is linked to the party's fascist past and so on. So, of course, there, there is a repression of migrants supported by the Italian state. And of course, together with the organization of the policing of migration by countries like Tunisia and Libya and Morocco and so on. So that's certainly also there. But I think in a way, it's, yeah, it's certainly true that the Italian example seems less drastic or strange. (laughs) Or just like a product of a country that never got over nineteen forty-five, because this very like harsh civilizational ide- and indeed even ethnic idea of politics is becoming more more widespread in in, in Western conservatism in general. Mm-hmm. I think on the thing with the point about victimhood, I think when um, you know, Maloney's party often bristle and object to any kind of mention of fascism coming up, because they're like we're not going to create a totalitarian regime and it's a little strange the way that they get away with saying that as if that was somehow to their credit to abandon such a drastic objective but and i think actually they like to bring it up in order to ridicule criticism in general oh how can you be so alarmist but yeah i mean i think they what they're doing is not celebrating the heroes of fascism or sometimes they do but i think that's not the main thread of what they're doing then they're not saying Mussolini tried to build a new Roman empire and wasn't that great and we should do it again. They accept a much reduced position as a junior partner in, in the West and so on, but also they have this obsession with civilizational decline. One thing I talk about in the book is the way that they connect the present to the end of World War II. So after the war was over, after Italy had already lost, Yugoslavs and Yugoslav communist-led partisans killed some probably somewhere in the low thousands of Italians among very many other victims uh, and this is in fact now typically talked about in Italy as a case of ethnic cleansing at the end of World War II. Both sides had their own genocides as Matteo Salvini put it between Auschwitz and the people killed by Yugoslav partisans there are no Serie A and Serie B victims like the football leagues. That's a Quite severe misrepresentation of the actual unfolding of violence in the Yugoslav Italian border at the end of World War II, and ignores the whole element of Italy invading to begin with. But I think it really works because it sends the message that you know all these other identity groups, all these other minorities, are bringing up these historic injustices and so on. But what about us? Why do Italians get excluded? And then they link that up to to what's happening now, and they say there was ethnic cleansing in 1945. And it's happening again now because Italians are being wiped out by immigration. And they're very unembarrassed to make such crude links. And I think that what they're selling and what the sort of mood or sentiment in society they draw on is a sense of victimhood, of people being trampled on, and they're aggressively standing up for this uh, far-right and nationalist identity politics in response. But at the same time, this victimhood can, of course, have dangerous and even violent consequences, lest we forget. There have been terrorist attacks, including in Italy, by people who took up the language of the the great replacement of defending civilization. At the same time, the difference from historical fascism is clearly it lacks the same ambition or mobilization, the same general attitude towards violence that historical fascism had.
0: I wanted to get your thoughts on the importance of language around this. Like you just said, there's clear differences between historical fascism and and what Vitalia Ditalia supports today. And Maloney says it's alarmist to refer to fascism as a connection with her party. Do you think it is important to use fascism when describing the party and what they stand for?
2: I think that in a certain light, there's a question of should Maloney's opponents, is the best way for them to mobilize support to point out her party's links to fascism, to bring up this record of extremism, even calling her racist and so on. I think that's not necessarily the best way for the opposition to mobilize. However, that's also somewhat distinct from the question of what what could they do instead. And I think the problem is that in the 90s and 2000s, a lot of the Italian center left actually accepted some of this kind of rewriting of history, this more relativist attitude, particularly, of course, it was important for many former communists who reinvented themselves as social democrats and liberals uh, to f- firmly distance themselves from the communist past, past. And one way they did that was to adopt some, even some of the, the language around World War II typical of the far right, regardless of its historical accuracy. I think the, the problem is that what the, while Meloni often says, let's not talk about the past, let's talk about what the government is doing, in fact, she and her government do obsessively bring up this stuff about the past, because of course, it really isn't that, you know, there, it isn't that far in the past. It's still the generation of my grandparents, and there are still people alive who lived through World War II, of course. So I think to take an example, there was the anniversary of the worst massacre of partisans that took place in Rome during World War II, so 24th of March, 1944. In response or reprisal against a resistance attack, the SS killed 335 partisans and Jews, prisoners, people they already had in custody, and so on. Giorgio Milani said the victims, she gave a public tribute to the victims, and she said that they were killed just because they were Italian. So the problem with that is, firstly, not all of the victims are Italian secondly and more importantly they weren't killed just because they were italian they weren't they were murdered as part of an effort to crush the anti-fascist resistance so what she's doing is trying to replace the history in which anti-fascism and the resistance was important with a language which although it openly comes across as about reconciliation just all italians together regardless of their internal divisions but which actually is a kind of replaces the real history of world war ii with just a kind of clash between nationalities in which all Italians were on the same side. So it's actually a bit like the thing with the Yugoslav partisans killing Italians, where they say, oh, it was ethnic cleansing. They were killed just because they were Italian, even though most of the victims were things like policemen, state officials, fascist personnel. So it's so the kind of the problem is, I think, is that because she is also talking about history that very directly involves fascism, it's kind of impossible to just ignore her party's past, or to get around that. I'm, of course, a historian and not someone strategizing for what the center left should do. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just impossible to avoid talking about it because in, it's like I said, with the thing Milani said a couple of weeks ago, on Friday, two weeks ago, most of the main national newspapers had front page headlines dedicated to rival accusations of historical revisionism about the events of World War II. So I think it's just a reality that that the discussion of fascism and anti-fascism does continue to shape Italian politics and national identity today. And I think that's unavoidable. It's probably less than in the past when there were more people who had direct memory of the events, but then it has proven very resilient.
0: And I just have one last question because I realize I've kept you for quite a while. I wanted to ask how Berlusconi And his legacy still Mm -hmm. looms over the right-wing movement
2: today. There's a famous intervention of Berlusconi's from 2019 where he takes credit for bringing the MSI, the old neo-fascist party, and the Lega into government for the first time in 1994. And he says, it was me who legitimized the fascists. It was me who constitutionalized them. Even though they're actually still his government allies, he called them, he explicitly called them fascists in this talk. So I think, I think it's a little easy to have this kind of idea that within the right wing coalition. Forza Italia are this kind of moderate force, which is somehow holding back and restraining the other, so more outwardly extreme and identitarian parties. But the real record of Berlusconi was basically to break down the kind of historic exclusion, the historic bar against letting these parties, and particularly the MSI, into government. As I say, it's not, my more general argument is that it's not that Fratelli d'Italia's success last September is this sudden breakthrough. Really, it's a process that's been going on for three decades in which the right has been increasingly porous to these ideas, and in fact, even in which Berlusconi himself has often said very indulgent things about historical fascism. Even, say, the foreign minister of the current government, Antonio Tajani, who, who is seen as a relatively moderate figure in Berlusconi's party, Forza Italia, has often said this kind of stuff like Mussolini did good things too, and so on. Beyond the sort of references to history and so on, I think that Berlusconi's effect has been a, an undermining of the quality of Italian democracy and indeed of the legal system. is kind of funny in a way. It's like even members of the current government, even Meloni herself, took part in the parliamentary votes that were designed to protect Berlusconi from prosecution. So, for example, even Meloni herself vote, voted to express that she really believed that Silvio Berlusconi thought that a teenage prostitute was Hos- Hos- Hosni Mubarak's niece. I think that the while Berlusconi had a dramatic effect in reshaping the right, in changing the kind of style of Italian politics, in dragging public debate into the mud and so on, I'm somewhat skeptical that Forza Italia as a party would actually be able to survive without his leadership. In recent years, it's lost many of its regional fortresses. I think its political identity, as distinct from the other wing parties, isn't particularly strong. I think it would be quite imaginable that there are parts of Fratelli d'Italia, Meloni's party, that would be able to basically eat up its uh, base. So if we think even of the fact that some of the key ministers in Berlusconi's government, so for some finance minister, Giulio Tremonti, have actually since joined Fratelli d'Italia. At the same time, there are more centrist, neoliberal hawkish forces like the party of Matteo Renzi, which I think are also competing to win over Forza Italia's base. So I think that the overall Berlusconi has had a very enduring effect on the political system, but he hasn't turned Forza Italia into a party that is able to survive him. It's always been a party that has combined more, more properly political elements and a certain political culture of a sort of liberal on economic issues, right-wing on social policy, but it combines that with uh, a m- rather murkier sort of array of business interests it represents and private personal interests it represents, and also some connections to, to closer to the world of organized crime. So I think that Berlusconi has, over the years, been very able to control the different elements within the party, which all look to him as ultimately its, its leader, the guaranteed center of gravity. But I find it hard to imagine such a party existing and having internal elections and congresses and so on.
0: David Broder, thank you so much. That's all the time we have for today.
1: Please join us on Thursday for our discussion episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please leave us a review. It really does help. Our producer has been Adrian
0: Bradley. Thank you for listening. And until next time.